<laughs> All right, so Joshua 11. Um, think about the book of Joshua in, in spiritual terms, was representing spiritual realities and truths um, that we see in Joshua. Uh, we, we can draw a, a correlation to, uh, to God's work in salvation and deliverance and Jesus' work in conquering the enemy. Uh, so to understand it not just as an, a historical text, but to understand the, some spiritual principles and truths behind it, I want, as we go through the rest of, of the book, and maybe it would be interesting for you to go back and start rereading it with this new little mindset, uh, but uh, when we understand it figuratively and, and, and typologically, as well as what it says uh, historically, we look at it in terms of God's deliverance of his people, not just into the promised land, but in, in broader strokes, the deliverance that we've received in Christ. And to understand it that way, we understand Egypt as the world, as, um, as, as uh, the, 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 the evil dominion apart from God, <clears throat> where people are held captive, where they're in slavery, Spiritually, we're held captive in slavery to sin. Um, God intervenes and delivers people out of bondage and slavery. How? By the blood. It's Passover, the blood on the doorposts. That was what allowed them to escape slavery and bondage was because of the blood that was shed. Um, they go through uh, the waters at the Red Sea, and spiritually we go through the waters of baptism, and it was their passing through the waters into a new um, identity. That's when they were crossed from death into life, uh, quite literally so. Um, and then we get to Joshua, and the Hebrew name for Joshua is Yeshua. Jesus' name is Yeshua. And so Joshua is a type, a picture, a figure of the coming Christ. And he is the leader. He is the deliverer into the promised land. It wasn't Moses. Moses represented the law. Joshua gets him into the promised land, life. The law didn't deliver them into life. The law doesn't deliver us into life. It gets us to the edge. Um, but Yeshua is the one who ushers us into life, the promised land. Uh, the promised land uh, is um, understood as the spirit-filled life. This is the, this is the place where they commune with God, where they walk with God, where God is their leader and, and, and they follow him. And, and it's the deliverance from, from, from formerly being in a land of death to living in the land of flowing with milk and honey and relationship. Um, and in the promised land, there were, uh, the war was won, and we'll see that in, in Joshua 11. The war was won, but there were battles that still had to be fought. Mm. And spiritually, the war's been won by Christ on the cross. Colossians reminds us that he's paraded the devil uh, before the angels of heaven and made a spectacle of him. So the war's been won, but there are battles uh, Ephesians 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rules and authorities and powers of this. Uh, you know, so there's, there's still battles we have to fight, but the war's been won. 
Um, and so as we go through this, we look at it from a historical perspective. We looked at it. We look at it from how from what Joshua actually led the people there. But but bigger than that, it's deeper than that. It's more profound than that. It's got incredible spiritual truth uh, and identity and power behind it. And when we understand it on both of those levels. Then we can understand this wasn't just a victory that was secured for God's people back in the promise. This is a victory that's secured for us right now because of Christ, because of his shed blood. The battle's been won. And so now we sit on this side of this story and say it was amazing what God did for his people. It's more amazing what Christ has done for us. So now we sit back, and we'll see how, how it was fleshed out in Joshua's life. But now we sit back, and, and because of what we see, how we see him go through the battles and win the wars, we draw the correlation to us. We sit back, not by our might, not by power. We don't use the weapons of the world. It's simply by Yeshua. And so we, we, the war's been won, so now we have the right and the opportunity to just simply plead that blood the blood of Christ that has already solidified the battle, claimed us victorious because we just plead the blood over, over it because it's a done deal. There might be battles we fight, but we don't fight them in ourselves. We fight them because of the blood of Christ. So, so can we start? Um, verse one. I'm just going to read the first five verses. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, this being the conquering of the southern, uh, the, the conglomeration of those five kings, he sent word to Jobab, king of Madon, to the kings of Shimron and Akshaph, and to the northern kings who were in the mountains, in the Arabah, south of Kinnereth. Can I just pause right there? Kinnereth, whenever you see Kinnereth, think Sea of Galilee. That's, what, that's the area we're talking about, okay? Just to put that in geographical perspective. In the western foothills and in uh, Nafoth Dor on the west to the Canaanites in the east and west to the Amorites, Hittites, Parasites, uh, <laughs> Parasites, uh, Cellulites, Termites, uh, and Jet. On the recording, those aren't actually tribes. And, uh, <laughs> And Jebusites in the hill country, and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mizpah. They came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. All these kings joined forces and made camp together with the waters of Merom, uh, at the waters of Merom, to fight against Israel. All right, so. One of the things that we see here is the idea that victory puts a target on your back. Okay? When you start walking in victory with the Lord, the devil pays attention. Now, I understand this a lot in the football world. Teams that are champions, they start the next season with a target. Everyone wants to beat the champ. Right? I mean, that's just the way it goes. You go undefeated, the next one up wants to take down the undefeated. So victory makes you a target, certainly in the spiritual world. When you start walking in victory as 
the, the Hebrews have done. They've gone from victory to victory to victory. It just puts a bigger target on their back. So understand, when we walk in victory spiritually, it's going to put a target on us. Now, that's nothing to be afraid of. Uh, because if we're walking in the spirit, we don't fight the battles. The war's already been won. The battles we have to fight, we fight in the Lord who is victorious. But we have to understand, it doesn't necessarily get easier the more we're walking in victory with the Lord. So one, understand that right off front. It, walking in victory puts a target on your back, okay? So please be praying for our church and for your pastors and for those in leadership and those who are sacrificing and those who are walking um, in obedience or, or trying to at least. Um, so they've got a target on their backs now. Um, they've been through Jericho. They've been through AI. They've been through the conglomeration of five kings, the whole southern portion. They got a target on their back. Uh, when the Bible lists all of these kings and these areas, in verse 4, it kind of gives us the synopsis. They came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots. How many horses and chariots did the Israelites have? Did the Hebrews have? Zero. Okay. Uh, a huge army, as numerous as the sands uh, on the seashore. All these kings made camp together uh, to fight against Israel. Um, another thing we have to understand, not only does walking in victory put a target on us, but each uh, successive challenge gets more difficult. That's just the way it works. It doesn't get easy. It gets the bat. Once you get past one battle, another battle is going to come, and it's not going to be an easier battle than what we faced. Now, look at it in terms spiritually, in terms of the reality of the of the Hebrews. Uh, the challenge increased in both size um, and in um, weapons they would face. Uh, now, instead of, instead of one city Jericho or one little city AI or five kings, now they got all these kings. So it's just a bigger battle, as numerous as the sands on the seashore. And not only is it bigger in size, but it's bigger in difficulty. Because now they're dealing with cavalry and chariots. Back in those days, a chariot was like a tank. That's how we would think about it. And so now these foot soldiers are dealing with tanks. And, and so every time we, we, we face something and are victorious in the Lord, another one's coming, and it just be ready. It, so we want Jesus to help us make it easier. <laughs> Jesus wants us to walk in victory regardless of the enemy. Right? Psalm 91, though they come at me from one direction, cause them to flee from me in seven directions. So it's not that I'm asking that you make the one who comes against me weak and piddly. Goliath wasn't. It's I want you to intervene in the difficulty and make them scatter completely. But the prayer in Psalm 91 is that you got to do it. I can't. 
And, and so, so the challenges increase. Now, now, now look at how, how they increase for, for, for the Hebrews in this. The first battle they faced in the promised land, in the, in the land of, of, of life, in the land of blessing, in the spiritual land, was Jericho. Who fought the battle of Jericho? God did. Do what did what did what did Joshua and the guys have to do? Walk around, walk around, and keep their mouths shut. God tore the walls down. They all walked in, took it over. Right? Remember that the people of Jericho were scared spitless of them. So then, the next battle they faced was the the town of Ai. Now it was a smaller town, but when they did, did God go ahead of them and make them all scared and tear them all down? No. They were actually emboldened, and they had to fight that one. First one, they didn't fight. Second one, they had to fight. See, it gets a little bit more. Okay? And so then after Ai, they go and they face these southern cities. How many kings did they have to face there? It wasn't one of Jericho. It wasn't one of Ai. Now it's five. Do you see how it's getting more difficult? And so now they're like, okay, took care of Jericho, took care of Ai, took care of those five, and now what do they got? Okay, wait, 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 wait. Way more. Now we got horsemen and tanks? Like when is God, right? Mm-hmm. Why is this getting more harder? It's supposed to get, this is what we think. Right? And God says, no, no, no. You need to, re-. this is what it says, this is what he tells them. You need to realize it was never about you and your strength. It's about your obedience, and I'll take care of it. Who cares how big the enemy is? Who cares how big the challenge is? I will win the war. You'll have to walk through battles. Walk through it like I tell you, you're going to be all right. So, so is how unusual is it that these guys would would uh, join together these kings? But it's Don't not, they usually fight each other? Well, the enemy of the enemy is my my friend, right? Okay. So is that isn't that how that goes? So yeah, I mean it's 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 people it's 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 humanity. It's people making alliances with everybody. I mean we, we we've made alliance with Iran and Iraq at different times mm-hmm. in our country's history. Are they our enemies? Well, yeah, now, but it's the same thing there. Yeah, same thing there. Uh, but but I want to still stay on verse 4. They came out with all their troops, a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army. It doesn't give us the number of what huge is, but the historian Josephus, um, who was not a Christ follower, who was not a Christian, he was, I believe it was a Jew that renounced his Jewishness, basically, and recorded history on behalf of, of uh, the, the enemies of Jews, honestly, and Romans. And, and he's, he's, he, he, he wasn't a God follower, but he is probably the best, most credible historian we have of ancient times. And Josephus says, and I don't know where he got this, but we, I put a lot of credence in, in, uh, in, in what he says. He says that this huge number, these, these, all these kings, it amounted, this army that the Hebrews have to face, and so it amounts to 300,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 cavalry, 
and 20,000 chariots. That is a huge army. Huge. Nothing like this before at Jericho, AI, or the, the Confederation of Five. Would you do those numbers one more time? Yeah, 300,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 uh, horsemen, and 20,000 chariots. They look like they're flanked and all sides. Yeah, they're all around them. Yeah, it, it was just amazing. Um, and so, so just to understand, like spiritually, this has profound implications for what we experience. Okay, um, but please understand that previous victory is simply a setup for future victory. God gives them a little bit. Look, you can handle this. Just do this. Handle this. Because something's more coming. You're going to be able to handle it. But you need some, you need some prior victories to give you some faith. And, and so he's walking them through this. Verse 6. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow I will hand them over to Israel slain. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. God doesn't want them to have any of the weaponry. They want to trust in him. A new challenge requires new encouragement. So he says, just relax. You've never faced something like this before. Um, Relax. God doesn't waste words. And he doesn't say stuff just to say stuff. So when I read that, what I understand is that Joshua and the people are looking at this onslaught coming, thinking, we can't handle this. We, there had to be something in them why God had to say, now listen, don't worry. In less than 24 hours, you're going to take care of these. Like, don't worry. Um, which gives me a little bit of comfort uh, because it's not that every challenge I face, I'm like, yeah, it's no big deal. God's got it. God knows that sometimes, sometimes Carl needs a little bit more encouragement. <laughs> and, and I'm thankful for that. Yes to what you said about not using stuff. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, so, verse 7, Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom and attacked them. The Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to greater Sidon, the, the Mizraphoth, uh, Maim, into the valley, uh, anyway, all these other places, uh, until there were no survivors left. Verse 9, Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. Um, Joshua and the whole army came against them suddenly. Um, when, when you, it, it, they'll, they'll talk a little bit more as we go on about, about things that happened during the, this little battle. But one of the things I want us to understand is that when Joshua fought them, he fought with three things, boldness, strategy, and full obedience. He didn't shrink back. He didn't get worried after God reassured him. He was bold and said, this is what we're doing. This is, thus saith the Lord, we're going to do this. It was very bold and courageous, as God told him to be in Joshua 1, 8, 9. Um, He didn't just say, well, we'll see how it goes. I mean, it was thoughtful and planned, this whole idea of a surprise attack. 
great military strategy. You don't want to let the enemy know you're coming. Okay? Uh, and so, great st- boldness, great strategy, and complete obedience. He understood what happened when they were disobedient. He lived through that at Ai. And they got whooped by a little tiny city that wasn't very well uh, guarded. And so, and so he knows, okay, we've got to be obedient. Um, and he was. Uh, he, hum, um, he attacked them. The Lord gave them into their, into the, into their hand. They defeated them. They pursued them. Jo- uh, verse 9 uh, Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. Um, part of what we learn in this is that we don't have to face, and we're commanded not to face the challenges in this world that we face with the weapons of this world. We rely on God. We rely on his word and his way. And when, when most other people in our lives would tell us, this is what I would do, this is what I would do, this is what I would do, I understand if you, I understand if you, I understand with you, we come back and say, but the Lord has said, there's no other discussion, right? <clears throat> Full obedience. And he did. Hamstring the horses, burn the chariots. Why did he hamstring the horses? So they can't be used. So he wouldn't be tempted to use them. Not only was he following the command of God to hamstring them, but he understood and God was reminding him of what God's command was before they got into the promised land back in Deuteronomy 17, which says, when you go into the land, don't use everybody as horses. (laughs) Deuteronomy 17, if you want to read it. His command in going into the promised land. The king, verse 16, the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. And it goes on. Or make the people return to Egypt and get more for them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back this way again. Uh, and then verse 17, you must not take many wives or he must not take many wives, or her heart will be led astray. So let, let me, and he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. So God says, "Look, when you get a king and a legion of the promised land, don't revert to the enemy's horses and strategies. Don't take for your wives get big old harems like all the other nations do, and don't accumulate a ton of money." And so Joshua, in part, is not only obeying God's command this time, but he's also remembering what God said and going into the promised land. We are not to amass horses and weapons of war like the pagans. Why? Because God is our victor. We don't need them. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, right? And God wanted his people to remember that. You don't, your protection doesn't come in all this other stuff. Listen and follow to me and follow me. It's interesting that God would say, don't accumulate horses, women, and money. Um, what was King David's problem? Women. women. He might not have accumulated many horses, but he sure got a lot of women. What was Solomon's problem? Even more women. 
and a whole bunch of money. Whole bunch of money. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so part of this is a reminder. Let's not forget what God has told us. Whether in the darkness or in the glory, let's not forget what God has said. We're tempted to, in the darkness, to forget God, what we've heard God say in the light. Like it gets, we're so in such despair that we, we forget all that God has said and all he's done. But the same thing happens when everything's great. Mm-hmm. When we've amassed a bunch of money and horses and mm-hmm. attention. We've, and so God says, look, just don't forget what I've already said. He wasn't telling Joshua anything new. He was reminding him what he's already said. This is part of what I was talking about on Sunday a couple weeks ago when I talked about uh, the value of compounding interest. Mm-hmm. Like God has told us so much in the past, right? Uh, and, and when we get in his word, he starts to remind us of those things he's already told us. But he won't remind us if we don't. This compounding interest really pays off spiritually. So verse 10, and, and I'm going to, I mean, we, I could read all these little things here. At that time, Joshua turned back and captured Hazar, put his king to the sword, and then everyone he put to the sword and destroyed them all. In verse 12, he took the royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword, totally destroyed them. Most of the servants said, verse 13, Israel uh, didn't, uh, did not burn the cities, but that were built on mounds, except for Hazor, and then he killed all these other people. I mean, he, this is just how it goes on. Let me jump down to verse 15. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. A, a, a synopsis there to remind us that Joshua had learned to be completely faithful. He wasn't taking shortcuts anymore. There were no excuses. Uh, he was doing all that Moses, com- all that the Lord had commanded through Moses. Verse sixteen. So Joshua took the entire land, the hill country, all the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, the western foothills, the Arabah, and the mountains of Israel with their foothills, and all this. He he took all of this. Joshua waged war against all of these kings for a long time. Except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them all in battle. Um, two things. The long time, that's where we, seven years. This whole, this whole event of taking over all of these, the, 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 the conquest of all this took seven, it was a long battle. It was a long battle. Um, uh, there's all kinds of, of uh, correlations we could draw between um, uh, God's complete deliverance of his, um, of his kingdom to his people. The fact that it took seven years, we believe a seven-year tribulation, tribulation when God says it's going to all be yours and then it actually happens. I mean, there's all kinds of correlations we could draw from it that I'm not going to get into tonight. Uh, but just suffice it to say this, it was a lot, it was, this, this took a long time, took a lot of commitment. Um, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites. Um, again, going back to the spiritual lessons we learn, there are some things of the world that we should not be at peace with, that we shouldn't seek to make peace with. In other words, sometimes we get pretty comfortable with our own personal sins. And we've made peace with them. And let them live amongst our lives. 
uh, and spiritually, he didn't make a peace treaty with any of the enemy. Every enemy of God's kingdom in our lives needs to be butchered. That that's spiritually that's what this is saying. Um, this is the this is something that was brought up. For it was the Lord Himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel, so that He might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Wow. Wow. Um, how does that sound? What about the innocent? The babies and that kind of thing. I mean, they <laughs> took them all out. I mean, I mean, the babies didn't Children sin, but yet they took them all out. Yeah, my question was, how does that sound? Imagine. What I hear you saying is, it sounds difficult. Yeah, yeah. challenging. Sounds fair. Yeah. Um. Yeah, th- this this may cause some to question. The justice of what was just. Mm-hmm. Now, we have to understand that God had told Moses that they would be given 400 years to, rip, to, to come to him and repent. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go back to, uh, I forgot where it was, uh, but Exodus, but God told basically <clears throat> Moses, that they'll have 400 years. And uh, everybody in the world? No, no, no. These, this, 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 this land there. Okay. The, the okay. People living in the promised land. They have 400 years before you even get there and have to do this. If they don't turn by then, basically that's what God was saying. Okay. Hmm. Um, it, 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 it's no different than what happens right now in our world, all over our world with the innocent dying. That's true. Um, uh, but, uh, but understand this. Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28. Um, if you want to talk about the hardness of the heart, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. He gave them over. Because of this, God, verse 26, God gave them over to shameful lust. Verse 28, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over. When the Bible says God gave them over, uh, or he hardened their hearts, it's not that God said, I'm going to make your heart such that you cannot repent. That's not what that means. That's wrong theologically. Uh, It's wrong with the uh, contextually, uh, and it's wrong linguistically. When God gives them over or hardens their heart, what that means is that he allows them to follow the course of their heart for so long they're not able anymore to return to him. He gives them over to their heart. When we tell God no long enough, Pretty, I won't say pretty soon. I'm not, I don't know God's timetable. But there is the danger of being given over to our own heart that says no. There's only one sin in the Bible that is unforgivable. And it's not blasphemy against Jesus. And it's not blasphemy against God. 
There are plenty who blasphemed. And he still had mercy and grace. It's blasphemy against the spirit. And blasphemy against the spirit is saying, I, though the Holy Spirit is convicting, and though the Holy Spirit is prompting for me to tell the spirit, I don't need you. I don't need your conviction. I don't need your prompting. I'm fine without you living inside me. It's blasphemy. And when you die in that sin of blasphemy, saying, Holy Spirit, I don't need you in me. I'm fine in eternity without you. And so when God gives them over, apparently, Old Testament and New Testament, if you're going to tell me no, your entire life, your entire life, and never allow your heart to be soft towards me, this is going to be your ruin. And I will... God, I've heard it said like this, God is such a gentleman, he will not force himself on anybody. He'll allow your life to get absolutely horrid so you realize, I'm not doing very well at this thing called life. God, can you please help? But he will not force himself. And so when I read this and I look at New Testament stuff and understand it spiritually, I walk away thinking, I need to keep my heart soft and sensitive to sin and correction. So my heart doesn't grow hard to those things that I need to destroy in my life. And so I'm ready and willing to respond to the Holy Spirit and his promptings so I don't blaspheme him and say, I don't need you. Do you, you understand what I'm saying? Um, let's move on. Verse 21. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites. Uh, from the hill country, from Hebron, uh, Debir, and Anab, the hill country of Judah, and all from, uh, and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites were left in the Israelite territory. Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did any survive. So Joshua took the entire land, just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. Um. Does anything stick out there in those verses? Yeah, that was the land of the giants. Weren't they the huge people? The, 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 the Anakites? The, the Anakites. Yeah, the descendants of Anakim. Mm-hmm. Actually, there were descendants of Anak, known as the Anakim. Anytime there's an I am ending in Hebrew, that's plural. And so Anak was the individual. Anakim are the descendants of Anak. The Nephilim... The giants in the land, yes, this is where they were from. Um, does the does Gaza. the Gaza? Yeah. Where's that ring bell from? Israel from right now. Gaza Strip. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about the next All one listed? Islands. I don't know where Gath is. Gath? You absolutely know where Gath is. That's where Samson was from. Um, um, uh, that's from Goliath was from. Oh. Okay. He was from Gath. He was the champ, the Philistine champion from Gath. Now, Philistines as a people, uh, we're told archaeologically um, that they're pretty small people, short people. And so the Philistines went out and hired mercenaries, giants, Mm. to fight on their behalf Hmm. uh, because they weren't very big people. And so Goliath wasn't necessarily a Philistine. He was from Gath, from the descendants of Anak, Anakim. Mm -hmm. And uh, was a hired soldier um, 
front of us. But anyway, so 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 all all of all of the Anakites, all of the big giant people were destroyed, except for those in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod, which happens to be the reason why why Goliath was around is because they weren't all they weren't all killed. Just as a side note, and I said a little bit already about the I M endings in Hebrew. That means it's plural. Uh, the interesting thing is when uh, God is referenced in Hebrew, he is called Elohim. El is singular God. Him is plural God. And so God in the Old Testament is El, El Shaddai, El Elyon, El Ohim. He's singular here, O Israel, the Lord is one. But he's writ, God is written of as a noun in the plural. Elohim, I am ending. Just as Anakim, just as, uh, or the Anakite, the Anakim, it's plural. So as a noun, God is written of as plural. As a verb, he's written of as singular in what he does. Those who don't understand scripture will say it doesn't make sense. Something's wrong. We who do understand scripture will understand that God is one. He is a singular God in a triune nature. He's plural. Elohim. The one God is a plurality of persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Let us make man in our image, plural, Elohim. Do you understand? Uh, so um, it's interesting that um, verse twenty-two: no Anakites were left in the in Israelite territory. Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod didn't even survive. Why, when the when the twelve spies went and spied out the land, and they came back scared, what frightened them? Why why didn't they have faith to go in? Huh? Giants. These guys right here. Mm-hmm. So why are they still alive? Hold on. Oh. Ah. <laughs> so the 12 go in to spy, and they see these giants, right. and they tuck their tail and run, except for Joshua That's and Caleb. Caleb. Yep. Okay? So now, here they are again, and they, and they come up against these guys again. Here, here's what I love. Uh, when we fail the first time, God is pretty faithful to give us another chance. Hmm. He's pretty faithful to give us another chance. Um, he doesn't close the book on us. He says, you didn't do too well the first, first time I let you give a shot at it. But don't worry, it's coming around again. Right? So that can be both good news and bad news. <laughs> I got to go around the mountain again? Yep. I... I, I, I thought I, I got to deal with these guys again. Yep. And so I'm going to get to that in a minute. Um, but just understand that, that just because, if I can use the vernacular, we screwed the pooch the first time, doesn't mean we're not going to get a chance to get it right the second time. Mm-hmm. That God is pretty faithful. He doesn't write anybody off. Um, and uh, that, that, that gives me hope. We'll get to it in a minute. Uh, then the land had rest from the war. Um, 
so I just I want to deal with, with with chapter twelve real quick. Okay, uh, these are the kings of the land whom the Israelites had defeated, and whose territory they took over east of the Jordan, from the Arnon Gorge to Mount Hermon, including all the eastern uh, all the eastern side of the Arab. And then it just. Sion king of the Amorites, right, and Heshbon had ruled in, I mean, it's all these people. Just list them. Right. Um, let me, I'm going to deal with like three verses in all of chapter 12, and, 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 and we'll have dealt with chapter 12. So the first one is this first verse. All these kings, these were the kings of the land, all the Israelites defeated, territory they took. Um, chapter 12 will list for us 31 kings that were defeated. That wasn't all the enemies, though, that had to have been defeated. What happened was they defeated key ones, kings, but there were still a lot of battles that the individual tribes had to fight. And, Brenda, one of the things I, reasons why I think some of them were left is because though all the heavy lifting was done by Yeshua, there were still battles the individuals had to fight. Yeshua had provided them victory. They had to walk it out themselves. Uh, and, and so the war was won. Now the individuals had to fight some battles. So spiritually, God has won, won the war of sin. He's, he's defeated our enemy, the devil. He's paraded around heaven uh, as a laughing stock. But there are still some giants in the land we got to fight. Right? So now we got to learn to fight them his way, not ours. So it lists all these people. And then in verse 6, Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the Israelites conquered them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave uh, their land to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh to be their possession. Don't have time to get into all of this. However, uh, two things, Numbers 21-2 and 32-33, talks about how through Moses, they moved into uh, and, and conquered um, uh, the uh, Og, the king of Bashan, uh, and Sihon which are listed there in verse 4 and 5. And so Moses did actually conquer them way back in the day. But something else is happening here that Joshua is doing. Um, and he's, he's, he's telling us, he's doing something that is really, really wise for us to, 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 to learn and adhere to. Um, current victories don't exist in a vacuum. Uh, they exist because there's been previous victories. Uh, and we don't stand on our own two feet. We stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us in victory. And so one of the things that Joshua, I believe, is doing here is he's throwing glory back on the man of God, who is God's man to get them out of Egypt in the first place. Rather than say, hey, look at me, I'm everything, He's saying, let's remember who we're indebted to. So he brings up Moses again. Um, and it's really, really wise for us to remember who God has used in the past and who has been faithful and who has been victorious in the past 
on whose shoulders we stand. You understand? Um, I, 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 I can go back to uh, just one generation to my parents and say that I stand here because they stood for me then. And I stand on their shoulders. Um, when, I, when I started pastoring the church down in Southern California, I, I spent, I think, the first six months just talking about how great the interim pastor was that was there for a year and a half before I was. Uh, even though, you know, there was a ton that had to be done that he didn't get done. The only thing I, I, the only thing I had to do was just champion his ministry. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think Joshua gives us a glimpse of that. Um, but, but then there's this verse 9 through 24. The king of Jericho, these are the kings that, that they destroyed. The king of Jericho, one king. The king of Ai, Nebethel, one king. The king of Jerusalem, one king. The king of Hebron, one king. And it lists all these kings, one each. How many kings in all? 31. 31. Okay, so 31 kings. I, I don't know that that number means anything. Don't, don't read into that. But he's just listing these 31 kings that, that they destroyed. Here, here, here's the idea. Um, two things. The principalities and powers of the land had been defeated. That, that's what this represents. The principalities and powers of that land had been defeated. But there were still smaller battles that had to be waged. Okay, I've said it before. I'm going to say it again tonight. The battle's already done. Colossians 2.15. The devil has been paraded around the hosts of heaven as a defeated foe. The principality and powers have been defeated. There are skirmishes we have to live out, though. You understand what I'm saying? The battle's done. It's a defeated foe. And so now we sit with the armament of God, which are not horses and chariots, which is by his spirit, and simply plead the blood of Jesus over all the battles that we still have to squirmish our way through. Not by our ability, not by our smarts, not by our cunning, not by our strength, not by our power, but simply by the blood of Jesus that has disarmed and defeated the evil one in his dominion. And so, though these are listed as defeated, there will still be battles that have to be won. And there's going to be giants that have to be taken. And it reminds me that the the principality has been taken care of. But there are battles we still fight. The other thing this tells me is that sometimes you have to go back to the history of what God has done in your life and remember the battles that he's won for you. And you have to at least tell yourself the story. I remember when Wyatt was diagnosed with hydrocephalus and how we had to trust God that at 18 months, the fourth ventricle was going to open up in his brainstem and he was going to be okay without any stunting. I remember when Shell was diagnosed. I remember when Joe was taken away from us and we had to trust he was going to come back. I remember. I remember when we started the church and and gave all of our future to 
hoping something would work. I, I just, you understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, and sometimes we need to go back and list. God won that battle. 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 So that we'll remember who he is, our reliance on him, and that he's the same God. And one way or the other, he's going to get us into the promised land. So, that's Joshua 11 and 12. I love when you have people tell their, their battles. Mm-hmm. That's so encouraging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How's that in their life? Yeah. Any thoughts, comments, cries of outrage? Well, <laughs> how come Manasseh was described as a half a tribe? There were two yeah. that were half tribes. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody know? Maybe they were the sons of... They were the sons of Joshua. Joshua. Yes, Joshua. That he, Joseph, I'm Joseph, sorry, yes. Joshua. Yeah, we're talking about Joseph. Sons of yeah. Joseph that he kind of said, these are two of my sons. I'm going to make them the prosperity of the 12 tribes. Right. Uh, and so they're called the half tribes because they really weren't from Jacob. They were from Joshua, Joshua. Uh, uh, Joseph. Joseph. Yeah. And they, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. And they each have very specific blessings. And in Judaism, the blessing of the parent to their sons are may you be like uh, Ephraim and Manasseh because of the blessings that's attached to those two, uh, to those two young men. Uh, it's a pretty, pretty honored thing to be blessed as Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, but the interesting, if I can just say this, is when they were blessed, when 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 um, uh, Joseph brought them to Jacob, his father, to bless them, um, <laughs> Jacob crossed his hands and blessed the younger before the elder, which is just so interesting because Jacob is the one who tricked his older brother out of the blessing by his father. And then Jacob was the one who was tricked into marrying the young, the elder before the younger when he wanted to marry the younger before the elder and then Joseph is you know his son and he's still suffering the same <laughs> kind of like crossover and Joseph's like oh no way you did it wrong he said no I know what I'm doing and and he did it uh, apparently under the direction of the Holy Spirit this time not out of trickery uh, and God just continues to redeem what we screw up uh, but yeah, it's Ephraim and Manasseh. So as I told George to research the calendar thing last week, I, I, I'm going to ask you to research Ephraim and Manasseh and their blessing and, and, and their role in the... In the tri- no, 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 next week. Next week. Right? Any other thoughts? Yeah. 